All right, turn, if you will, to Isaiah 55. We've been in Acts chapter 2 for a while now. Looking at discipleship, and one might wonder, well, are we ever going to get through Acts chapter 2? Sure we are. Is it about discipleship? Absolutely. To be a disciple of Jesus, you have to follow him, and who is he? And as disciples of Christ, followers of Jesus, it's part of our growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord is getting more familiar with the biblical presentation of Jesus. Now to the world who doesn't know anything about the Bible, we're going to tell them about God. We're going to tell them that Jesus is the one God has ordained to judge the living and the dead. And he commands all men everywhere to repent, and that means you. Say it in some way or another like that, some content coming across that the God of heaven and earth who made everything has a son and a savior. But once we've crossed that line, we've become a disciple by believing on Jesus. Then we go through this process of growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord. Second Peter chapter three. So it's grace, our Christian life, and knowledge, knowing the Lord. That's gonna be knowledge about him and personal relationship with him. But I found in my life over 50 some years of being a Christian that when I discover some new or deeper aspect of Jesus in his word that I have fellowship with him in that. And so I think it's important to always recognize that knowledge and grace go together. So in Acts chapter 2 we looked at the Holy Spirit coming down. I've tried to sort of give this a, a picture that we can relate to with our eyeballs, a, a graph, if you will, of the, what could be a complex chapter. But the Spirit comes. Everybody sees the Holy Spirit coming down in Acts chapter 2. There's this crowd that's gathered that's seen the Holy Spirit come, men speaking in tongues, and the crowd having various opinions about what this is about, wondering mainly what's, what's going on here. Some mocking Uh, Most just kind of wondering. And Peter stands up and gives the first message ever preached in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. And Peter, first of all, says this is a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. What you're seeing here is the fulfillment uh, of that chapter. In the last days, God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Then Peter talks about Jesus, and he says, The Holy Spirit is here, but this Holy Spirit is here because of a person, Jesus. He's God's Son. He's been proven among you by signs and wonders. And furthermore, you killed him. It's kind of the flow of Peter's message to these people. The Holy Spirit has come down. You're seeing the work of God right here, right next to you. And I'm here to tell you, you are responsible for this First of all, because you killed the Lord of glory. But he's risen from the dead. Killing Jesus did not thwart the purpose of God. Killing Jesus only forwarded and realized the purpose of God. 
Peter goes on to say all the, basically all the prophets have talked about that. This happened according to the foreknowledge of God. Jesus is risen, and he's risen from the dead in fulfillment of Psalm 16, which Peter quotes, quotes the last part of it. Then Peter goes on to say, and by the way, David wrote Psalm 16 because David was thinking about a covenant. So he says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. The psalm which talks about someone who's not going to go to corruption, well, that obviously wasn't David because, well, David's gone. And so we have David in his tomb and he's decomposed and his tomb is just down the road. And then Peter says, you have to understand that when David wrote this psalm, he was a prophet. He was a man who wrote by the Spirit of God. He was moved by the Holy Spirit when he composed psalms. And David wrote a whole bunch of psalms, composed about half of the book of psalms. And as he did it, he was moved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was in operation there. And he says, David wrote this psalm that we just quoted, that we just looked at, Psalm 16, knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. And so Peter says, you have to understand that this Psalm 16 was written in view of chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. Psalm 16 wasn't written in a vacuum. It just wasn't David was in the spirit on a day and, and singing and, and the Lord came upon him and he wrote this psalm and says, no, specifically, David was specifically thinking of the covenant that God had made with him. And in thinking of the covenant of what God had made with him and thinking of all the angles of that covenant, David wrote Psalm 16 about the resurrection from the dead. And so again, we should always be reminded and always appreciate that there are five covenants articulated in the Bible. Some folks want to add more to it. Not, never a good idea to add God's word. Just read Proverbs chapter 30. Don't add to his words, lest he, you be, he reprove you and you're found to be, we'll put it nicely, in error. <clears throat> These are the five covenants that are articulated. They structure the history of redemption. And if you kind of sit back and squint, they're about 500 years apart, so it's easy to remember where they fit in redemptive history. Noah, 2500 BC, Abraham, 2000. Another 500 is Moses, another 500 is David. Then you got the prophets, 800 to 400. Kind of an easy number to remember. And then Jesus comes about 5 BC, hangs on a cross and rises from the dead and inaugurates a new covenant in 30 AD. These are the covenants articulated in Scripture. And so there's this Davidic covenant, the last of the four redemptive covenants in the Old Testament. It's always important to remember that. It's the last one. There aren't any covenants after that because God doesn't have anything else to add to who Jesus is going to be. He's already said it all. He's already given us Abraham. He's already... And he's already taken 40 years in the life of Abraham to lay out a covenant. Some of you are reading Genesis and you're realizing, oh, the covenant with Abraham. Well, which chapter is that covenant? Is it chapter 12? Is it chapter 15? Is it chapter 17? Is it chapter, wait a minute, which, which chapter is the covenant? It's over the span of 40 years. And it's finalized when 
Abraham offers up his only son, a type of Jesus being offered on the cross, and his only son coming back, a type of Jesus being raised from the dead. So that's the Abrahamic covenant. Mosaic covenant gives us all the, the symbolizing of priests and tabernacles and sacrifices and all those things. The Davidic comes, covenant comes along and gives us this dynamic, this perspective, this element of kingship and reign over all nations. So that's the Davidic covenant. We looked at this Davidic covenant a bit in 2 Samuel. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we looked at that a little more closely and we saw that the Davidic covenant says it's going to happen after David's death. There's going to be a blood descendant. God's going to establish his reign. He's going to build a house for God. His throne will be forever. He will be a son. And God is fully committed to this. It's forever and it will never, never be rescinded. Full assurance. So here's Peter. We get to that place where Peter says, okay, David wrote the psalm thinking of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And then he sort of summarizes it. David, thinking on that Second Samuel covenant, looked forward into history, saw the messianic future, and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption, did not decompose. And so that's sort of Peter's picture here and focus on the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7. I hope this is for you all, I don't know, a good thing. I pray every time I've come to this over the weeks that God would do what I truly pray every week and say, but just say it out loud. I cannot put the glory of this in your hearts. I've had God fill my heart with this glory in such a way as it would last for a year. Some of you know what that is, to just be glowing for a year. Kind of tapers off a little bit, a little bit, but just a reality that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and King. And we talk about the death of Christ and that is absolutely foundational and vital, no question. But his reign is what implements that death. It's one thing for Jesus to die, it's another thing to bring it to pass, the the benefit of it to pass in human history where there's principalities and powers and every kind of opposition you can imagine to prevent the gospel from happening in the lives of human beings in every generation. And Jesus is at the right hand of God reigning in order to rule the nations with a rod of iron to run the show on earth and to guide and direct everything according to the eternal purpose of God to save people from their sin. That's what he does. And it... The opposition comes in many forms. Some of you have read of the Scottish Covenanters, right? And there's just some books you read and you just know it's not so much the book is blessed, but you know that that what's going on is blessed. And to read of those Scottish Covenanters that for 25 years were hunted down and murdered. And you know what the issue was? It wasn't the atonement. It was Jesus as king and his church and King Charles doesn't have the right 
to force upon us leaders that we have not chosen. The kingship of Christ was the issue, not the atonement. Now, they could have made a lot of issues about the atonement with some things, but that was what got them killed. So don't be surprised if we find ourselves in a position where the reign of Christ, that Jesus is Lord, and that he's Lord of his people, and that no government, no human being, no, I don't know, human structure gets to come in here and dictate anything to us. Only Jesus has that right to dictate to us what we should do and be. Don't be surprised if in some strange way, some strange angle on that, we end up having to pay, pay some price for that. The resurrection of the Christ. A lot of other things I think that this you know, would stand for and when you get crazy views of eschatology everywhere, around every corner, it's really good just to understand that the Davidic promises to David, the Davidic covenant, has already been fulfilled. And it's being fulfilled right here and now. We don't know, we need to go digging into the Old Testament and coming up with some structure of, of the Davidic covenant and then impose it on the new. That's kind of interpreting the book backwards. We read it forwards, but you've got to interpret the book. Here's the fulfillment, and here's the promise. How should you interpret the promise? By the fulfillment. And so Jesus being at the right hand of God is stated by Peter, is interpreted to us by an apostle as being the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the inauguration of it, which Peter actually is going to say some more about in a while. So according to Peter, David, looking at 2 Samuel 7, wrote Psalm 16 about the Christ, that he was raised from the dead. Now we look a little bit at Isaiah. And right now let's just pray and ask the Lord to be with us because we're going to, I don't know why I got started on Isaiah last, last week. I should have waited to start it this week, so. Uh, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we are here before your throne and your son died on a cross, bore the sins of countless humans to redeem us unto you. Lord, so that you could adopt us as children with a good conscience. So that you could have us be part of your one great eternal family and not have to sweep our sins under the rug but to be able to say to yourself and right now to all those beings that are in opposition to you for whatever reason and to us that our sins are forgiven justly, that our sins have been paid for, that we have received remission of sins. And Lord, we probably would all have to confess that most of the day we don't think about that. It's kind of something we assume, something we trust and, you know, walk around in and, but, oh Lord, we just want to pause and we just want to say we thank you that you took those steps to walk up to that cross and to let those Roman soldiers put nails in your feet and in your hands and to put you up on that cross and hang there until you die. We thank you for it.
We just praise your great name for it. But Lord, that's not where it ended. You rose from the dead. You went into heaven. And you sat down at the right hand of God. You are exalted above every principality and power and every name that's named. And you did it in fulfillment of this covenant with David. And Lord, as we look and see how that covenant is sort of talked about more in the Old Testament and in the New and how central it is, Lord Jesus, just fill our hearts. Let us just sit back and just rejoice. You, you tell us uh, to drink the cup of your salvation so we can just sit back this morning and just drink that cup. And that, Lord, you would apply to every heart here what I can't even think of all the reasons why it's a good thing that you reign from on high on our behalf. You're there making intercession for us. You are there spiritually ruling the nations and our hearts. You are there providentially ruling the nations and our hearts. And Lord, just pray that uh, you would just give us a blessing this morning and we would have takeaways that we will remember forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the Old Testament takes this covenant with David, this 1000 BC, and it starts to develop it. Who knows about when Isaiah wrote? Anybody? 700. That may not be exact. I may not get an A on a test with that, but it'll get me in the Bible, and I go, yep, Isaiah, about 700 B.C. When did Jeremiah write? It's roughly. Big number. 600 B.C. When did Ezekiel write? A little bit more fine-tuned, but give or take 550 B.C. When did Zechariah write? One of those minor prophets that the, after Israel has come back from captivity and they're building the temple and they start to lose heart. They start to slack off. And so, hey guys, Zechariah Malachi are there talking to them. So put that at around the easiest, you want to say 400, but it's really closer to 500 B.C. Isaiah 700, Jeremiah 600, Ezekiel 550, and Zechariah will put them in at around 500. Again, you won't get A's on a test for that, but it'll keep your mind clear about just the basic chronology of the Bible. So here Isaiah, 700 B.C., he says, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. If you don't have money, if you see yourself too poor, if you see yourself, I don't know, too much of a wretched person, unworthy, don't think you have anything to give to God at all, he says, don't worry about it. You come and buy and eat. Buy wine, milk without money and price. Just the irony of spending money, energy, time, that kind of thing for something that won't satisfy. The world will not satisfy. Doesn't take you very long. After you're about 30, you start figuring out the world doesn't satisfy. All the things you were looking forward to have now happened and they just don't have the glow around them that you thought they would. Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in the rich food and incline your ear. Come to me here that you, your soul may live. Here is this appeal of the gospel. God appealing to human beings. He's reasoning with them. And I'm going to make you, with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast and sure love for David. We looked at those words. There's the word covenant, the personal relationship of the living God. He's yours and you're his. 
everlasting, it's constant, it's for all time, it's forever, it will never fade away. It's the sure love, it's the hesed love, it's the faithful love of God for David and for all who are in him. Gauges the deepest love and commitment to God that God has to give, God has in himself and has for others. It's for David, it's about David and everything surrounding David and all the definition around David and all the things David said based on this covenant. A whole framework of things comes out of that Davidic covenant. It's the sure mercies of David and it's steadfast, the last word in the sentence. It's steadfast, it's steady, reliable, faithful. It's gonna happen. So as Christians, just talking with someone last week and just reminded the illustration some of you like to go fishing, right? Who was I talking to? Was it Nathaniel? or Anyway, somebody went fishing and they didn't catch anything. Uh, that was the story of my life, which is why I don't go fishing anymore. I'm like, I already know what I'm not going to get, so why go? Um, but you go out fishing, you throw that line out, and you're just hoping you're going to get something, right? Maybe you'll get it. Maybe you won't. But you're hoping to get a fish, right? So that's hope. Is that the hope described here? What's the hope described here? It's a sure thing. You're not going to go to the covenant fishing hole and come away with nothing. You're not going to go to the gospel fishing hole and come away empty-handed wondering why did you waste your time. This covenant is the sure love for David, the sure chesed for David, the steadfast love of David, and always remember that. If you've ever struggled with assurance, it's, it's gnawing and agonizing. It just ruins everything in your life. You kind of think you're a Christian, but you kind of think, well, I'm just, God's uncorked your heart and see all the rottenness there. And you go, but how can I be? And even if I am, is God going to hang out with me with all this blah just there in my heart? And the sure mercies of David, steadfast love of God in him. This is the ultimate expression of God's love in the Old Testament. Drink often at the well of the mercies of David. Jeremiah, 600 B.C. I'm just trying to show you that the major prophets and a minor prophet, the whole time that they're prophesying have this Davidic covenant in mind. It's not a small thing to them. Throughout Jeremiah, David is like everywhere. Isaiah, there's a lot of David. And where David isn't explicitly named, David has been represented to the point where you know that everything, it's about David, it's about the Messiah coming. Again, I've always marveled, I don't know how many times I say this, but I just marvel when... I read an Old Testament scholar because they make a living at denying the Bible. I mean, that's their job, I guess. So they write book after book after book and then conservatives get the books to make sure that you know, they're going to try to answer them. And if conservatives would quit answering their books, then the guys wouldn't write the books anymore because they wouldn't be sold. And these liberal scholars just say, you know, the Messiah is just this really quasi version of things in the Old Testament. It's, it's not really there. And I don't know where they get that. I see it on just about every page. Messiah, Mashiach, just simply means the anointed one, the anointed one of God. Now, 
The word doesn't occur a lot of times, but where it occurs, it takes this tag, Mashiach, and it tags it to David. And so everything about David and the Davidic covenant now gets this another tag, lots of tags about things. God describes things from all kinds of ways, but Mashiach or Messiah is one of them. And so in Isaiah 700 B.C., he's talking about the sure mercies of David, the Messiah. In Jeremiah 23, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. There's a future. The days are coming. He's looking to the future, and God's declaring what he's going to accomplish. He's not saying, I looked in the crystal ball this morning, and here's what I came up with. God says, I'm going to create a future, and in that future, this is going to happen. God declares the future. He doesn't read the future. He's not bound by the future. He makes the future. The children of Israel around 600 AD, what's the big deal that happened with them? That great kingdom of Assyria that had been in power for hundreds and hundreds of years was now coming to an end and Babylon was rolling around and took them at Carchemish up in northern Mesopotamia. Battle of Carchemish, and that's where Assyria was done. And Babylon now took over, and Babylon came up to the gates of Jerusalem and tore down the city. And if that wasn't enough, they did that in, what, 602 B.C., around in there. And if that wasn't bad enough, they came back in 586 and did it again. So the city was going to be destroyed and Jeremiah had been saying that and history was clearly now pointing to the reality of that and God says to the people there, you need to repent. I mean, right up to the moment where they were carried away, God still kept telling them, if you'll just quit doing your bad things and start doing good things, then you're going to be okay. Does that remind you of someone some of you read about recently in, the, in, in Genesis? Cain? The story of Cain, there's Cain and Abel. Abel comes to God, freely offers a sacrifice, takes the best of everything, gives it to God. Cain comes along and grabs a few bushels of what he already had a whole bunch of and brought it. And God did not accept Cain's offering. Now, did Abel do anything to Cain? No. And God comes to Cain and says, hey, you need to sort this out and do better and Cain, instead of going, oh, yeah, you know, accepting correction from the Lord. By the way, if you read that passage and you didn't ask the question, I I think I put some of the questions in because I had the question. It's like, what's going on here where God's talking with Cain? I thought he was thrown out of the Garden of Eden and all that. I just always assumed after that it was, God didn't talk to people, but God's talking to Cain, dealing with him as God will, reasoning with him as God will. God is not unreasonable. If you start having thoughts that God's unreasonable, that doesn't come from his book. It doesn't come from the Holy Spirit. And Cain wouldn't hear God, and he just, finally out of envy, he had a discussion with his brother Abel. We don't know what the discussion was, but apparently it didn't go well because he turned around and killed his brother. And his brother didn't do a thing. Never harmed him. Never did anything to Cain, and Cain killed him out of envy and hatred. 
It's the same thing here in Jeremiah. God's saying, hey, reasoning with these people who have been in wickedness, who have been sacrificing their children to Moloch. To stop doing it. And I'll turn around and, and fix things. And they, they wouldn't. So God says, okay, it's not going to work for now. But there's days coming, declares the Lord. There's days coming in the future. And I'm going to raise up for David a righteous branch. And I'm sure most of us are familiar with Jesus being called the branch. Well, here it is, Jeremiah 23. Now this righteous branch sort of really goes back to the prophecy of Isaiah where the Messiah is called the root of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. And so out of Jesse's line, Jesse, David, there's going to come this root and here we're going to have a righteous branch. God says, I'm going to raise it up. I'm the one who's going to bring this to pass. David. And I don't think anybody who read this at the time scratched their head and says, well, what does he mean by David? It's clear, it's David, basically the, the first real king of Israel, the father of the nation in that sense. David, the one who's had a heart for God. David, who wrote many of the psalms that we sing on Saturday. They knew who David was. They knew what the covenant was. God says, I'm going to raise up a righteous branch. And if you've been reading Genesis chapters 1 through, through 11, one of the things you notice, is there ever anything in there about, well, you know, Seth just kind of had an ornery personality, so he was just sort of hard to deal with. And, you know, gosh, Enosh, you know, he, he, was, he was, you know, a little bit of an airhead. And he was awkward. Did you read any of these psycho evaluations of anybody in those 11 chapters? We live in a therapeutic world where everybody's got to get their therapy, just go on TikTok, and all the people are just basically using TikTok for therapy, venting their angst, their foolishness, their ignorance, unfortunately, their rebellion against God everywhere. God really isn't dealing in the world of psychotherapy. He isn't dealing in the world of personality, although if you've got, you know, we all have, we're all born with a personality. Some are easy. I know some people, they just got great personalities. Everybody loves them. And then there's others. It's like, like nobody seems to love them. They got to work hard. But that's not the issue. The issue is character because that's what God looks at. Now, if you got to work on your personality, do it. We all have to. But he's a righteous branch. God's about righteousness. And he's going to reign as king, and he's going to deal wisely, and he's going to execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. Does this remind you of Isaiah chapter 9 and chapter 11? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The government will be on his shoulders and of his kingdom and of his government there will be no end. I mean, here is Jeremiah basically summarizing Isaiah chapter 9 and chapter 11, giving his own sort of stamp of the Jeremiah version of it. But it's all in the same domain of things. 
He's going to reign. This righteous branch is going to rule. Now, some of us have watched older movies because, well, that's all we had in our day. There's the Battle of Midway. There's the new movie, which I think is pretty good. The older movie was really good, too. It's a bit dated, but there's a scene in there, and I've probably mentioned before because it just really, I don't know, it affected me when I saw it. And there's the naval commander who's about to take one of the only aircraft carriers we got floating. He's about to take it out to sea. And then there's the, the head of the whole operations, an admiral. And he says to the commander a couple things, give him some advice. But the last thing he says to him, he says, you know what? Remember this. When you're in command, command. If you've been given a place of command and leadership and responsibility, don't shirk it and don't let people undermine it. Make sure people respect it. Don't become a jerk. Don't become a turkey. But when you're in command, command. And guess what? When Jesus took command, guess what he is? What, what does he do? What is he in? He's in command. He rules the nations with a rod of iron. The, another psalm by David on this topic. Psalm 2. But he's going to rule, he's going to be in command and command with justice and righteousness. People are going to be saved, people are going to dwell securely. It's not going to be like some folks who use their place of authority for themselves, to get rich, to do their own thing. He's going to rule the way it should happen for the good of others. And this is the name that he's going to be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This David is the one who is going to bring what the New Testament calls imputed righteousness. It's not going to be, oh, we heard, you know, Jeremiah and we repented and now we have our righteousness. No, that's not the righteousness talked about here. It's the Lord our righteousness. God is our righteousness. The righteousness of Christ upon faith. This is one of those passages that should stick out to you when you are reading in Romans and Paul says, you know, this justification I was talking about, it's apart from the law, but it's witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets talk about a righteousness apart from personal law-keeping. And here's one of those places. It's a number of places, but here's one of them. So 700 B.C., hear the Lord, come to his son, believe on him, ho everyone that thirsts, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Here's Jeremiah. The days are going to come when I'm going to raise up this righteous branch, this messianic king, and he's going to deal wisely and justly. Righteousness will be the keynote I'll raise up David, a righteous branch. He's going to execute justice and righteousness. And what you're going to call him is the Lord is our righteousness. Righteousness is the factor here. Imputed righteousness. Ezekiel chapter 34, 23 through 31. I'm not going to read it all, but there's some little sort of excerpted passages from it. Isaiah was 700 B.C. 
Jeremiah 600 B.C. and Ezekiel's about 550 B.C. In Isaiah, the nation was still flying high. In Jeremiah, they're about to go into captivity. In Ezekiel, they are in captivity. And one of the marks that brought them into captivity and in the captivity itself was, again, they had a crisis of leadership. The human leaders have been and remain corrupt. They're self-serving and self-willed. And so God says there's a coming in the future, a future in which I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. Echoes back to Jeremiah, chapter 3. Verse 15, I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and with understanding. This is the feeding that's talked about, spiritual food, spiritual reality. And he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Is Jesus your shepherd? I mean, we all have relationships in the world. We have husbands, wives, friends, moms, dads children but in the end is Jesus your ultimate shepherd do you look past those in the end for Jesus to take care of you now we went to Denver Downs a while back first time I think I'd been it's all the pictures all the time it's really the first time I'd been and they had sheep and everybody in the whole place knew I was a city kid because I went over to pet the sheep right stinky smelly sheep that don't care two cents about you I don't know what it is. Why, why do we always want to pet things? I want to pet my birds out, in the, out on my bird feeder. I want them to be on my finger and pet them. I don't know what that's about. That's we're supposed to, I guess, be taking care of them. My birds, me and Gwen both, in the, when it was freezing, were worried about them for a whole week. I was trying to figure out, can I put a box with a light in it and put it over there and maybe they'd go and get by it and warm up and then like, now nah, the cats in the neighborhood would come too. So anyway, God knows how to take care of them. I don't. I couldn't figure it out, so... I hope the birds made it. <clears throat> a shepherd. Someone who will ultimately watch over you. I remember some years ago when my father had died already and my mother died and I felt this strange sense of aloneness. Like, there's nobody here anymore, even though they wouldn't have helped me. <laughs> um, for who knows, a bunch of reasons. Um, complicated reasons, but they were still there, you know. And when they were both gone, I'm like, wow, it's me and my sister. That's it. Except for God's servant David, my true and my ultimate shepherd, who has everything necessary to watch for my soul and bring me to heaven holy and without blame. My servant David shall be prince among them. God is going to give, them king, give him kingship so that he can not just simply direct the nations but rule over his people as a shepherd. And then there's language here in Ezekiel of covenant. I, the Lord, will be their God. They will be my people, my sheep. I will be your God. This is all language of relationship, of covenant commitment. It's just all over this passage when you read these things do you sort of stop for a minute and go gosh 
My wife or my husband seems to have a hard time with me sometimes, but I'm in covenant with God. And I don't want to mess that up. I don't want to mess up my relationship with my wife or husband, but I don't want to mess up this covenant with God. God has chosen me out of all the hundreds of millions of people that has lived, he's chosen me to be in a covenant relationship with him. You can't even imagine a lottery that would match to that. I mean, think if you were offered all the gold in the entire universe. I mean, you're not going to be able to count it because they don't know how, they can't see the end of the universe. There's an in there somewhere, it's finite, but they can't see it. What would that do for you? Anything? Have you gotten to the place in your life when you look about where you live and the car you drive and some of the things you have and you go, you know, this is just stuff. It just really doesn't mean anything. It doesn't add any value to who I am. It's just stuff I'm here, I use, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, is using the world but not using it to the fullest extent. The real value is my relationship with people and above and beyond all that is my relationship with God. I'm in covenant with God. I'm his, he's mine. It doesn't get any better. Can you imagine something better? Has Hollywood come up with something better? I think they try, or at least they certainly say what they've come up with is better than knowing God. Sin is better than knowing God. Pleasures of sin for a season, as the Bible puts it. A season, because it's all that's going to last. You are one of God's sheep. When Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, all these passages in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and other places are, are what he's referring to. I'm the good shepherd, that is, I'm the good David to come. God declares this. I will, I will, I will. You are, you are, you are. I am, I am, I am. These are realities. In this passage, there's a lot of statements about Israel's going to do this and that. And it all looks like, you know, if you were in an agrarian society, it'd be all good stuff. But same thing happens in Isaiah, but when you get to Isaiah chapter 66, all that good description, what does it become? What does it morph into? New heavens and new earth. So as you're reading these passages and you, you go, well, gosh, you know, maybe Israel's supposed to become a nation and be all these things. Realize it's idealized language. None of that stuff would ever satisfy. I mean, if we're going to talk about stuff rather than, you know, having a bunch of sheep, bunch of sheep and milk and honey, I want the Avalon starship. I mean, I would set my sights way higher than a pasture. And I think that all those things are simply pictures of an ideal situation which translates very truly into a new heavens and a new earth where you see God face to face and we experience some of that here. Because that's what the New Testament does. It takes the terminology of the Old Testament and shows its fulfillment with us in Christ, in the here, in the now. Zechariah, in that day a fountain, 13, 1 through 9, I'm just doing some excerpts. In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. 
in the future, God is going to be, this is Zechariah's oracle. They're in Judea, they've returned from captivity. They're building a temple, but like all of us, we get excited at first, but then things start to become old hat and squirrels start to take, take us off focus and these prophets come in to sort everybody out and get them back focused. And this portion of Zechariah 12 through the end is his second oracle about the future. A fountain's going to be opened. And it's going to be opened by striking the shepherd. What shepherd would that be in Zechariah's day? Having read Isaiah, having read Jeremiah, having read Ezekiel, what shepherd would that be? Just some shepherd off the shelf? Or is that David, my shepherd? Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. And he goes on down again with some idyllic language. Well, actually not so idyllic. Uh, Some judgment, but. And I will bring the third part through the fire and I will refine them as silver is refined and I will test them as gold is tested. God is going to establish a new people of God. A new people of God that are going to go through refining processes. Anybody here complaining about the refining process? Come on, be honest. You want to follow the Lord, you want his blessing, but the refining process? Ah. I mean, I watch the videos of them refining metals because every now and then I'll get on some technology streak and want to fill my brain with five minutes of something worthwhile. And I think, can you imagine sticking your finger in that molten pot? Well, God says, imagine I stick you in the pot and I refine you. It's not fun. And a lot of dross you didn't know you have all of a sudden starts coming to the surface and you're saying yuck and your wife or husband who knows you well is saying yuck and you just know you got to go through it and you can't get it fixed. You get through those places in your life where God is dealing with something and no matter what you do, you can't fix it. Envy comes out or jealousy. And you're sitting there going, this is wrong and this is stupid and there's no reason for it. I don't want to be Cain. You don't want to be Abel. What's going on here? And no matter what you do, you can't shake it. Just when it's not bugging you, the next day something comes up and there's the envy and jealousy again, right? The true rottenness of sin just kind of just pops right out. And it goes on sometimes for days, weeks, and months because God is turning up the heat to get to that deep-rooted dross that you prayed to get fixed. The Lord filled your soul one day and said, Lord, let me get rid of all my envy and jealousy. He's like, okay, you asked for it. Up with the fire. God's going to refine his people. He will always do that. If you want to be a child of God, you're going to be refined. You have to benefit from that refining. You can't complain about it. It doesn't help. And also, it doesn't make for a happy father. A wise son makes a glad father. Is that what you do with God? Do you think about that? I'm going to put a smile on my father's face even when I'm getting the spanking stick. I want to glorify God before the principalities and powers of heaven the world, even when I'm getting the spanking stick. 
but they will call on my name. No, they're refined, but they will call on my name, and I'm going to answer them and say, you are my people, a new people of God. The Lord is my God will be the response. Again, the language of covenant. The language of a new covenant in Christ. Well, the New Testament is sort of easier to sort through. It's more simple and direct. The New Testament opens with Matthew chapter 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. As most of us know, the book opens by reaching back into the Old Testament and pulling forward those two people who represent the core of the history of redemption. And they pull them in, Matthew pulls them in and says, Jesus Christ is come to bring all these promises to reality. Abraham represents the covenant of blessing to all the nations based on the sacrifice of Isaac in chapter 22. David represents the covenant establishing the reign of Messiah, a reign that fulfills the Abrahamic covenant and brings it to pass. The prophets weave these covenants together into a glorious future and speak of it always, sometimes in somewhat cryptic language to us. And Matthew 1 picks up and takes a hold of all this prophetic momentum of the entire Old Testament and says it's now being fulfilled. This is how the New Testament starts out, with David and Abraham. Matthew one twenty, Joseph is called the son of David. He could have said, just said Joseph, the angel could have said Joseph, don't fear, but he said Joseph, son of David. Because the angel wants to make clear to everybody that what's going on here is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Jesus is David's son, David's final heir. Jesus is the Messiah, and Joseph, this son that you're going to have in your family, though he's not of your loins, he's going to have all that dignity and honor because you're bringing to the party the fact that you are a son of David. Matthew 9, and Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men follow him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, who? Son of David, when you ask the Lord for mercy, is that what you call Jesus? Lord, you know, I, I really need a job. Do you ever say son of David? Do you ever go to those covenants that the new covenant fulfills and embraces and, and just brings into one space in time and in history? I don't do it very often, but every now and then I get some gumption up and I say, well, I'm going to appeal to the Lord. I'm going to twist his arm. I'm going to say, Lord, you promised this. This is in the Davidic covenant. This is in the Abrahamic covenant. I really need you to do this. And God's like, oh, this is great. Someone's appealing to me on the very terms that I gave and established over a period of 4,000 years and fulfilled in my son. And notice what it says, okay? When he entered the house, the blind men came to him and said to Jesus, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They've called upon him and said, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus goes into the house. So they follow and, do you believe I'm able to do this? 
They said to him, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith be it done unto you. Faith in what? Faith in the Son of David. That's who they were calling out to. Because they understood. And these are, these are two blind guys. Then I'm going to call them New Covenant Theology. Because they were calling on Jesus for all the promises of the Old Testament. The average Jew was aware of the significance and the centrality of David and his covenant and everything that went with it. Their faith in Jesus was that of faith in the messianic son of David, not just, I don't know, just some religious thing. They appealed to God. At that point, they're appealing to Jesus and the only thing they know about him at that point is he's the son of David. Call on Jesus for all that you know to be true about him. You'll learn more later, but call on him with what you have. Matthew 20, sorry, Matthew 12, 22 through 23. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw, and the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? See, again, the average Jew was fully aware of the significance of the Davidic covenant. The average Jew was fully aware of the prophetic development of the Davidic Messiah. Jesus is exercising power and authority to heal and to cast out demons. This is the power of a Messiah. They're starting to go, could this be the Messiah? It's almost like too good to be true. We've been looking for the Messiah for how long? So long that we've really kind of just thought, well, he'll come one day and not in our lifetime. And gosh, here he is, maybe. Jesus is not just some wonder worker. He's working miracles and wonders, and it's not like, ah, you know, he should be in a circus because he's got a really good act. He said, no. There's 4,000 years of prophetic definition about what's going on here. This isn't just someone working some amazing things. Romans chapter 1. Paul's a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart to the gospel of God. Paul's identity has nothing to do with human affiliation. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. Has everything to do with Christ. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. The marvelous letter that he lays out is organized presentation of the gospel of God. If you want to know what the gospel is, well, here it is. It's the good news of God, news that should be widely proclaimed and gladly received. And here in this letter, we can find its core outline and its core tenets. This is the gospel of God. It's a gospel that he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. The gospel is not some new thing. It's not an invention of some religious people in the first century. It's been promised, proclaimed, elaborated, illustrated, prophesied for 4,000 years. It's been inscripturated by the Holy Spirit over the space of 1,000 years. The Scriptures have been openly presented and proclaimed for three millennia. It's promised before in the prophets, and that book is open for anyone who wants to read it. Isn't that amazing? God made the universe say, hey, here's my book, you read it, you'll know all about me. And you know all about how to get saved. It's amazing. It's concerning his son. The gospel always has been, always will be about God's eternal son and savior of the world. The Bible is and always has been and always will be about God's eternal son and savior of the world. So when you encounter someone that they got all these ideas about what they think the Bible talks about, the front page newspaper is one of the favorites about prophecy and things. Prophecy is about the eternal son of God. It's about 
the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant being fulfilled in Christ. That's what it's about. It's concerning God's son. It's not concerning anything else. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, the human lineage of Jesus is core to his human identity and all the promises and prophecies of the history of redemption converge on the son of David. All of them. The lineage of the woman in Genesis 3.15 winds its way through history gathering momentum and its fulfillment of all that it gathers up. I was watching an expedition Bible and he was talking about the river Pishon. It's one of the rivers no one could figure out what it was and he went and sort of found it. Now someone found it before him but he just made a great video that the guy who found it before him didn't, didn't know how to make a video. But it's really cool to watch this river. It goes all the way across the Arabian Desert from the mountains over on the Red Sea all the way across into Mesopotamia and you can see it. I mean, it's like big. It's some places a mile wide. And there's just sand on either side, but in the middle of this river, this whole way, are all these pebbles that for you know, millennia, this river brought all these pebbles from the mountain. It's the same quartz, the same basalt, and the same whatever he talked about, because I don't know about geol so much, but all these different minerals are the same minerals that are found in the mountains that travel across Arabia hundreds and hundreds of miles. And on the way, they get rolled and they turn into round smooth stones. And when you get an aerial view of it, it's like, well, there it is. It goes all the way. There's only one place in the desert where it kind of disappears, but it comes out the other side. And that's like the history of redemption. Coming from those mountains of Genesis 3.15, winds its way across the desert of this world, but bringing with it everything that that promise had in store. Making it round and smooth until it finally connects. And Genesis 1, the Garden of Eden but it connects in the gospel. David descended from David according to the flesh. Jesus, like that river, brought all those promises through that lineage of David into human reality, human history. He was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. This we have is the son of God. This is definition of son of God, spirit of holiness, resurrection. Jesus Christ our Lord, this is the definition of Jesus. Truly human, truly divine. He's a risen and exalted Savior, an heir of the nations. That's the definition Paul starts with. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, 2 Timothy 2.8. Paul succinctly summarizes these factors to Timothy again. This is basically what he said in Romans 1, 1 through 4. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended from David according to my gospel, the gospel of God. Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is risen, Jesus is of the seed of David. This is the gospel, there is no other. When people say all religions say the same thing, I'm like, have you ever even like just opened the Bible at all? Or are you just parroting something you heard somewhere? Timothy is to remember this always, that Jesus is a descendant from David. He's to embrace this always. He's to search it out and, and find out the richness of it, the height and depth and length and breadth of it. And he's to proclaim it and teach it. Remember these things, Timothy. I'm passing off the scene. Remember these things. Revelation 3.7, the church to Philadelphia, that sixth church. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, and this is Jesus speaking, who is, 
He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. Philadelphia said, you need to know I have the key of David. They were having some hardship there. Said, you need to know I have the key of David, not them. They claim to be Jews, but they're not. You have the key of David. I have the key of David. Jesus reminds them and us that he is a descendant of David. He has all the dignity, the privilege, the power, the authority of the Messianic Davidic king. He's glorious in holiness and mighty to save. He has the key of David. And the last thing, the last thing we hear from Jesus in the scriptures, this is the last thing. Jesus winds up this incredible book, a book that is so mystifying at first, but once, once you get the key of Revelation and you can open it, you go, man, this thing is just so full of glory. You wander around in like a great museum, just finding new stuff all the time. I, Jesus, have sent my able angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. My brothers and sisters, that is what your Lord and Savior leaves you with. He's the root of David. Descendant of David. He's the branch. He's the Lord our righteousness. He's all those things that David brings as he takes all of those rounded, smooth rocks of the history of redemption and pours them into the gospel. So I hope the Lord will bless you in these things. I hope this isn't tedious. I hope you remember Jesus Christ of the seed of David and ask the Lord to really fill your heart with that. Well, Heavenly Father, we come to your throne and uh, Lord, every day the thing we need most is fuel in our gas tank. Most of us here know what we're supposed to be as husbands, as wives. We need the gas in our gas tank to fulfill it. We know what we're supposed to be as parents and some of us, gosh, we know what, to be, what we're supposed to be as children, save children. Lord, it's not lack of knowledge in those things. Maybe there's a few things we could hone up. And Lord, what we need is gas in our gas tank. What we need is spiritual wisdom, revelation, knowledge. What we read in Isaiah, vision, or read in 2 Samuel, vision. All this vision Nathan spoke. We need to see Jesus. Lord, we sing the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Well, this is the Jesus we're supposed to turn our eyes on. So Lord, just pray this week that we can turn our eyes, that uh, here and there you would just give us a sense that you are the Lord of glory, that you are sitting on the throne of David, that that one great thing that we look for next is a, your coming, a day of judgment and a new heavens and a new earth, that that is where our hope ultimately lies and should land. And Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here and pray you'd bless everyone and pray that we could be to the praise of your glory and that, Lord, we can bring this glorious gospel to sinners all around us in the terms and in the concepts that they can understand so that one day they will come to you and start asking questions as they grow in grace and knowledge about you. They start asking questions about who is David? What's the point of this covenant? And then you can take them and show them all the marvelous things. You can show them your glory as the son of David. In Jesus' name, amen.